Jason, it's not too often that I hawk a product on this podcast. Yeah. But I have to. What you got? My wife made the greatest purchase of 2018. So in our last episode, we we my wife my wife is on the podcast with us. We talked about our journey through foster care. Yes. And in that episode, I think you can go back and quote me saying, "This baby is awesome." <laughs> This baby sleeps four to five hours. Famous last words. Four to five hours. I think I was laughing when you said that. I was like, this will be the end of it. This will be the end of it. And sure enough, Jason, it was. (laughs) Oh, man. So this weekend, especially, I was home alone with the kids. My wife was at a bachelorette party in Tawas, Michigan, which is two hours north of Flint. And I was up every half hour to rock the baby to back to sleep because she kept waking up and it was awful. And some of you parents are just like, yeah, that's how it is, buddy. Sorry. Yeah. But sorry. Sorry about that. All the moms up in Canada. Really. <laughs> sorry. <laughs> Keep going. So my wife gets on Amazon and she finds this thing called the Baby Merlin's Magic Sleep Suit. And I swear to you, Jason, this thing is a godsend. It's a Christmas miracle product. Yeah? The baby slept for seven hours. Oh, my gosh. Seven whole hours. So the way it works is it's, like, got padding around it. And so they kind of... It's like almost, a super swaddle? Yeah. Well, I don't know if it... I don't know what that is. Like you swaddle? Like you wrap them in it's a blanket It's better than a swaddle tight. because it's, like, it makes, a, makes her look like she's uh, the Stay Puft Marshmallow girl. <laughs> That's awesome. Because it's just so big, but the because it's got all the padding, the baby thinks that it's being held. That's and so that's why it works so well. And I, you know what, Jason? Did it pay for itself already with with you, one night? You, it's hard to put a price tag on seven hours of uninterrupted sleep for parents of a four month old. But yeah. the price tag is thirty nine ninety nine. <laughs> Let's just go ahead and I'll post a link in the show description. <laughs> I swear to you, I you're so, you're so happy. <laughs> I am so I'm just so just thrilled. And I told my wife, I said, I think we need to buy another one because she's pe- a twinkle in your eye. She peed through her diaper and got all over the sleep sack or the sleep suit, and so now it's sitting in the dryer yeah. drying, and we can't put the baby to bed until we put her in the sleep suit. <laughs> But my, but my wife, Jason, you know, she made a great purchase on Amazon. Yeah. And many of our listeners, you probably are guys are Prime members or whatever you guys are. You guys are always on the Amazon shopping. You can buy a great book written by a great author. The book is called How the Nations Rage. It's out right now, and it's by an author named Jonathan Lehman. Yeah, the subtitle is Rethinking Faith and Politics in a Divided Age. Dun, dun, dun. Is the church divided, Alex? Uh, the church is pretty divided. Yeah. I mean, it was pretty divided before, you know. I mean, it was pretty divided in 1861. Po- politics went to nutso land. That was a Civil War reference. Oh, I didn't catch it. Oh, come on. Know your you, history. You and your history. We've Jonathan and I even talk about Abraham Lincoln in this episode. Yeah, which you do. When he, when, he, when he started talking about the Lincoln Monument, I was just like, you have, you have me. Yeah. Where, where do you want to go out to dinner tonight? That's what I wanted to say to him. Yeah, super, super smart guy. He has a degree in political science and English, a master of science in political theory, a master of divinity, and a PhD in political theology. That's that's a lot of paper hanging on the wall. Yes, it is. I didn't even know political theology was a degree that you could get. Well, he's got one. 
he's uh, Dr. Lehman. Yeah. But this, I love this book, Jason, so much because I felt like he does a really good job of saying, let's forget about the left. Let's forget about the right for a second. Let's focus on Jesus. Now, we will have our biases, yes, but yeah. it ultimately needs to be about Jesus. How are we presenting Jesus to the world? And I just, I love any person that just tries to do that for their readers. Yeah, he makes some powerful, like, statements that I would have never even thought of. Like, it's easy for me to think of everything as religious, but not everything as political. And he does a good job of hammering out those points. But mainly, it's the millennials who are right. That's your big takeaway yeah, from this episode. That was, that was my big takeaway. Uh, we were right. Yes, science. Yeah, just the way we view the guy. church, the way we view separation of church and state. Um, we, we get into all of that in this interview. It's it's a really fun interview, and Jonathan's just a really smart guy. So I want you guys to, to listen to this. I know that politics are kind of a touchy subject these days but i think jonathan does a good job yeah trying to make us think of how we should think about politics just one quick announcement before we get to the interview we are releasing a new pulpit that's right from phil Britton all the way up in marquette michigan oh yeah that's up there guys it's it was a good one too yeah so good make sure make sure you look for that in our podcast feed not your pastor's pulpit absolutely so, Jason, um, let's dive into this episode, because who wouldn't want to listen to two guys who couldn't make it as pastors <laughs> talk about politics? Am I right? Yeah. We have we have things to say, or at least our guest does. So, yeah. you guys, this is not your pastor's politics episode. All right, guys, we are here with Jonathan Lehman. What's up, man? Hey, man. Thanks for having me. Uh, where are you calling from, by the way? We always like to ask our guests that. Suburban Washington, D.C., just on the Maryland side, Chevrolet, Maryland. All right. So uh, I... Well, first suburb out from the Capitol on so, oh, our direction. I got to ask, what's your favorite uh, monument to go and check out and see? Well, it's got to be the Lincoln. Right. Oh man. <laughs> I mean, it's just it's remarkable. The the, the second inaugural address to uh, I forget the exact phrase. Two for uh, two part two uh, two two sides praying to the same God. Uh, achieve and cherish a just and lasting peace among ourselves and all nations. Just these glorious phrases. Yeah. So I, I go with Lincoln. Um, and so I went to Washington D.C. when I was when I was a youngster, and my dad and I are huge history buffs, and we just you know we sit down and watch History Channel on a Saturday afternoon just because. And when we went to Washington D.C., we went to the Smithsonian, and like all the uh-huh. ex- all the exhibits were under like construction, so we didn't get to see very much there. And then there was some like major flooding going on, so we didn't get to go see any of the monuments because of all the flooding. Uh, so I, I so really missed out. When are you coming back? Uh, I want to come back soon because I want to do. I want to hit up Gettysburg and then Philadelphia and then go to D.C. Well, when you come back, let me know. I'll take you around to a couple of my favorite places. What? <laughs> this is awesome. We should make a little podcast. I, field don't, trip. I don't. I don't have any secret places to take you. Don't. <laughs> where? Where? <laughs> where is got... Nicholas Cage and all the treasure? <laughs> like... <laughs> right. Uh, anyway. Yeah. We are here with Jonathan because he wrote a book that's actually it's coming out uh, 
when is it? Tomorrow. Jason, tomorrow. Tomorrow. When is yeah. this interview airing, though? Um, Probably next Friday. <laughs> okay, so this interview is going to air <laughs> next Friday. Last, last Wednesday. <laughs> yeah. So, okay, yeah. I'll start over. <laughs> so we're here with Jonathan because he wrote a book that came out on April 3rd called How the Nations Rage. Now, Jonathan, where did you get the title for this book? Well, the title comes from Psalm 2, Why Do the Nations Rage and the People's Plot in Vain Against the Lord and Against His Anointed. So, yeah, it comes from the Psalms there, but the publisher and I were going back and forth on it, and we, we went through several titles. The one reason we settled on that one is because, uh, well, why, why did we settle on it? I think the, I think the basic idea is, is right now, uh, I think Christians in America – don't really know how to think about politics. It's a bit of a mess. Uh, and yeah. I think a lot of people, <laughs> a lot of older generation especially, identifies their Christianity with America, whereas I think younger generations realize, well, that's kind of problematic. And I think the older generation is beginning to identify it. And here's the deal with Psalm 2, how do the, why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? That's true of America. And that, that's hard for, I think, Christians in America to sometimes understand that, in fact, America is just one more nation raging against the Lord. And we as Christians are aliens, we're sojourners, we're, we're, we're exiles, and we need to recognize that. So the title of the book, in some ways, is pointing to the fact that, look, you, you, know, you can love America, you can be a patriot, in, in however you might define that, but the more important thing is you're a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. And so you need to hold your yeah. nationality with a loose grip. Uh, yeah, I love it already. I love, I love. By the way, I love the the cover art because yeah. it reminds me so much of the opening title scene for Rocky Four with the boxing gloves. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> That's totally my generation, man. <laughs> Cold War, Ivan Drago. I'm there, dude. All the steroids they plugged into him, man. N- not gonna lie, when I got Nelson's catalog and I saw the cover of the book, I was like, I'm getting this for Alex because he's <laughs> he's gonna love it just from the cover itself. <laughs> well, I think, you know what I what I like about that cover is, well, the first version of it, they just gave me the two boxing gloves. And I said, no, you got to put the church in between, you know, one representing Democrats, one representing Republicans. No, you got to put the church in between. And the reason I think that's appropriate is, in many ways, that's where the church or Christians in general feel. We're kind of caught between those two parties, each trying to co-opt the, you know, the faith vote. uh, And uh, Christians should know better. Yes. So, I mean, you said it it right off the bat, the older generation kind of has their Christianity mixed in with their politics, the younger generations trying to get away from that are, I think, maybe has gotten away from that. But who's who's right? Where, where, where's the middle ground in there? Yeah, sure. I mean, I want, I want to be fair. I wouldn't say everybody in the older generation does that. Nonetheless, I think it was a Trevin Wax who made the point. Uh, older Christians, Christians say over 40, 45, 50, tend to identify G, uh, America with, say, Jerusalem. Yes. And uh, younger Christians tend to identify America with Babylon or, or Rome. Yeah. Well, I think the younger generation is right. Okay. Um, oh, yeah, from for the sure. beginning, from, from, from the founding, uh, going back to early Puritan sermons, uh, America was often identified as a city on a hill. And what are they doing there? Well, they're borrowing from Jesus talking about the church. It's the church that's called to be a city on the hill, not the nation. America is not a, a chosen nation. It doesn't occupy a, a specific place in God's redemptive plan the way Old Testament Israel did and the way the church does. So, you know, look, I'm, I'm, I, I love America. I, uh, 
you know, I like Thanksgiving. I like Abraham Lincoln. We've talked about, I like baseball. I like all those signs and symbols that we associate with America, but America is just one more nation and it rages against the Lord. It's got sins. It's got a lot of sins. And we need to be honest about those. And something I say in one of the early pages of the book is we actually love America. Uh, we become better patriots by loving America less. Or to put it another way, we, we, we love America more by loving Christ even more, right? So I'm, I'm a better friend to America. I'm a better patriot when I realize that it's at best secondary, tertiary, whatever in my identity. I'm a Christian first and foremost, and therefore I need to understand my relationship with America purely as uh, a fallen nation that does some good things, does some bad things, and so forth. So, so I want to ask you this, Jonathan. Why write this book? Uh, there, there isn't anything going on in our nation today that would, you know, probably warrant, right? <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, what? I was being sarcastic. He was being sarcastic. <laughs> <laughs> I, I got that. I got that. I got that. But I, so I don't want to give too much of the book away, but I really love the the first part of the book when you talk about you you have a friend. I, I don't want to mess this up, but you have a friend who's a missionary overseas and he wanted to know what's going on in the political scene back home, and you, you kind of like have to scratch your head and go, oh, crap. Like, yeah, <laughs> what is going on? Well, there's a, uh, uh, a, a Clinton running for office again, and also a reality TV show host running for office. So we got that going for us. Yeah, yeah. I mean, look, there's you, 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 can, you can take the close-in look, or you can take the 30,000-foot look. If you, if you close in, you're looking at the election and the aftermath of the election and how divisive that is among Christians. And in many ways, that's what prompted the, the book. Um, um, you know, so I have, I have friends emailing me, telling me that their churches are f- feeling divided and so forth, and they feel that. I, I'm teaching a Sunday school class on Christians and government that fall, right? In the fall of 2016, I was reading, teaching this class. Oh, man. And, <laughs> and uh, not, not wise, not wise. Uh. Don't, don't do this at home, kids. <laughs> uh. <laughs> Teach Christians and government during an election season. Oh, man. Okay. Anyway, the, the, the Sunday after the election was a really – it was a heavy Sunday. So we're right there on Capitol Hill, right, about 1,000 people, mostly younger people in the church. And it's, I, I remember the morning after the election uh, just feeling a real heaviness, especially for my minority friends. I, I knew that they would wake up and f- just feel all sorts of things, and I was feeling a heaviness for them. And I, I called a few of them just to check in and see how they were doing. And uh, at the same time, you know, we, so we – I would say our church is majority conservative uh, politically. But there, there's a number of, of people who are more progressive in their politics as well, and certainly a number of minorities, and about a third of the congregation's minority. So I knew it was just going to be a really tentative Sunday. And so I'm teaching this class, and I, I start by saying, look, friends, first and foremost, we have to remember we're citizens of the kingdom, sort of the stuff I was just talking about with you. And uh, whether you're candidate one last Tuesday or lost last Tuesday, remember we're Christians if you're candidate one. You know, I'd encourage you to look for ways to to love those who are on the other side of things and who are upset by it and look for ways to empathize. And for those of you whose candidate lost on on uh, Tuesday, uh, again, remember that finally it's not the next pre- it's not the last or the next presidential election that gives us hope as believers. We're never supposed to put our hope there, right? Um, we work for good and we do justice, absolutely. But at the same time, our hope isn't finally in any presidential election. Well, so I go on and teach the class, and then towards midway through the class, maybe towards the end of the class, 
an older African-American lady raises her hand and says, you know, I don't feel like anybody is empathizing with me. None of you white people really care about me. And then at that moment, uh, a, a middle-aged white woman raises her hand and says, I can't believe the things I'm hearing. The Democrats are evil. You know, Mike Pence is an evangelical Christian and he's he's good. And I'm just thinking, why did I do this? <laughs> why did I do this? Well, that, I use that as an illustration for the kind of divisiveness that, that politics presently is to America, uh, to Christians in America right now. You, you have people identify. And, you, and I, look, I want to be sympathetic to both sides because uh, politics involves matters of justice. Right. And Christians should care about justice. So if I'm looking at the other side and I don't understand why they're doing what they're doing, or if I'm on the other side looking back at the first side and don't understand why they're, it seems unjust to me. And it's like, don't you care about Jesus? Don't you care about the gospel? Don't you care about justice? Right. So both sides are looking at each other bewildered. So on the one hand, I want to have a lot of sympathy with both sides. On the other hand, yeah, we got to get some things straight. We got to figure this out. And it's not just the present moment. Here's, here's one of the burdens of the book is to say the problems we're experiencing right now is not just right now. In some ways, this, this goes back hundreds of years to the very political philosophy that we've, we've imbibed of, of philosophical liberalism. Philosophical liberalism says you go into the public square and uh, kind of leave your religion behind. Well, that's impossible. You just can't. That's not true for the Christian. It's not true for the Jew, the Muslim, the atheist, the progressivist. We all go into the public square with our God or gods informing all of our political decisions. So in the book, I describe the public square as a battleground of gods. It's nothing more or less than a battleground of gods. So, yeah, the problem is bigger than 2016. The problem is bigger than the post-sexual revolution 1960s, right? The problem uh, is, in some ways, you could say as old as America. In other ways, you could say it's as old as the fall. And so what I'm trying to do is help uh, Christians, left, right, and center, think about what politics is and how our faith engages in politics from, from, from the ground up. Well, that's one of the things I really liked about your book was I felt like you were kind of saying nobody has all the answers and you were pointing everybody to Jesus. Like, let's, let's, let's like, I, I was like, I'd read parts of your book. Okay. In this, in this paragraph, he's kind of like bashing the left a little bit, but then in the very next paragraph, you'd be bashing the right. And I'm like, I, I, I kind of like this. I kinda, Who is this guy? I, he's not picking sides. It's just weird and new. I kind of like the it. Ground. <laughs> but there's stuff there to offend everybody. <laughs> that's, and that's what I kind of yeah. like. I kind of like the people that are just like in the middle of it and going like, how can I burn everything down? Isn't that a line from Batman? Probably. probably. It's probably so something wanted, Bane said. Yeah. Some men want to destroy the world. Or something. <laughs> so uh, so if the, listen. No, Go if ahead. the public square is the is the battleground for the gods, then what what do you what do you make of like separation of church and state? Yeah, sure. We have to we have to recognize that there's a difference between the separation of religion and politics and the separation of church and state. Those are different things. So let, let me let me unpack that. Uh-huh. Everything I do when I go into the public square uh, has a worldview behind it has a, a view of justice, uh, a view of humanity, frankly, a view, and a, view, a view of the universe and God behind it. I don't care if we're talking about abortion, same-sex marriage, progressive tax rates, federal funding for national parks. Behind my uh, uh, perspective in the public square is, is, is a worldview, is a morality, is a God or gods or capital G God, right? That, that's inescapable. So when Senator Feinstein on the Senate Ju- Judiciary Committee is interviewing a Notre Dame law professor who was appointed for a, 
a, judi- a, a, a judgeship. You know, S- Senator Feinstein, uh, uh, objecting to this nomination, says, um, uh, 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 I forget what her name was, your dogma lives loudly within you. That was the phrase. Your dogma, meaning your Catholic dogma, uh-huh. lives loudly within you. And I thought to myself, uh, uh, Senator Feinstein, does your not dogma not live loudly within you? I mean, are you are you really setting aside your morality, your views of God and the universe when you step into the Senate? Of course you don't. We nobody does, right? So everything we do in life is is religious. Doesn't matter if I'm in the voting booth or at home or you know playing a game. All of life is religious. At the same time, all of life is political. You can't get away from that, right? So what does a pastor do when he gets up in the pulpit? He makes a political speech. He says, Jesus is Lord. He's king of kings. And you, O nations of the earth, are called to repent and believe and follow after Jesus. So the pastor makes a profoundly political speech. Now, I'm not saying a partisan speech, but he's making a political speech because he's calling his members, he's calling the non-Christian visitors to account for the fact that all justice and all righteousness is determined by God. He's calling to radically change their lives. So you can get away from the fact that all of life is political. Philosophical liberalism has tried to divorce the political and say, look, there's a public and a private. Well, who gets to decide what's in public and what's in private? That's a profoundly political decision. And what you'll find is from age to age, what's public and what's private is going to change. So go 50 years ago when people's sexuality is very much a private thing. Well, these days it's very much not a private thing. It's very much a public thing. Marital rape, for instance, 50, 60, 70 years ago, something the state wouldn't have paid much attention to. These days, gratefully, they would pay attention to it. It's become a public thing. Yeah. In other words, the very line between public and private is a, is a political decision. Okay, so Paul, all of life is political. All of life is religious. You just can't get away from that. That is an inescapable fact. Okay, now you asked me about separation of church and state. Well, that's a different thing. Okay. But that is 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 an institutional decision about what authority has God given to the state and what authority has God given to the church. And those are different authorities. So I'm a huge advocate of the separation of church and state. I don't think the church, state should be deciding what right doctrine is. I don't think the state should be deciding who a true Christian is. It shouldn't be administering the Lord's Supper and baptism the way you had in Christendom, right? Yeah. By the same token, I don't think the church should be making, picking up the sword and wielding the sword again as it did once upon a time. Yeah, n- nothing scares me more than the state stepping in and making those determinations and making those des- those doctrinal designations. I think that's terrifying. So yeah, no, that's- I agree with you 100%. I'm all for separation of church and state. And I feel like when I mention that to uh, a lot of like my atheist friends, they're like, what? Like... I think I think separation of church and state's a a great thing. Yeah, no, that's right. But the, but the thing is, here's here's the deal: separation of church and state does not mean, and this is what your atheist friends probably think. Yeah, it does not mean the separation of state and morality. So they're going to say, "Well, who are you to impose your reality morality yes, on, yep, on, on me and the yep, state?" That's exactly well. It. Well, it's my morality or somebody's morality. It's it's you can't get away from that. There, yeah. there, there's no such thing as a moral law. All law is moral. It's just a, it's just a question of whose whose morality are you going to impose, and with it, whose worldview behind it are you going to impose? No, the separation of church and state isn't about morality as such. It's about again, what authority has God given to the state, and what authority has God given to the church? He's given the church 
what we'd call the keys of the kingdom. He's given the state what we'd call the authority of the sword, a coercive authority. One's a power of declaration, one's a power of coercion. And they occupy different jurisdictions. So, yeah, I want, I want to be clear. Uh, politics and religion overlap. That's just a descriptive reality. That's not me trying to impose a view. That's just me describing reality, right? That's a different thing, however, than the separation of church and state, which is about different jurisdictions, different authorities. Yeah, that's that. Yeah, that's really interesting. Yeah, um, but, but this is tough stuff, right? It, it is, but I don't. I don't this think is, I. This isn't soundbite material. This is like, no, we got to stop and think about this. Yeah, I, I think it's tough for people to do. And I'm glad because because Jefferson and who else Madison were the pioneers mainly for separation of church and state because they seen exactly what happened with the Church of England and how they kind of determined things and they were kind of like yeah we we don't want that here. Well, I'd like to think Jesus was a pioneer. Well, okay. Of it. <laughs> but, but, but he Jesus juked me, Jonathan. He did. He yeah, did. Totally. totally Jesus juked. <laughs> Sorry about that. <laughs> it's all in good fun. Yeah, 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 yeah. You know who's uh, dividing the the church? Satan. Huh? Satan. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Thanks, guys. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to derail you. Good no, stuff. I was, I was just. I was just asking that question just in general. Well, in some, in some sense, it goes it goes to Jefferson. But Je- Jefferson and Madison are, are building on a, a, a tradition that goes back to, uh, in some respects, it goes to uh, Locke and before him, Thomas Hobbes, and even in some ways, Machiavelli. You know, so so t- Thomas Hobbes, for instance, very, very much was was clear that the, the, the state, the Leviathan, as he called it, needed to have absolute authority in the land. And so he had a very distinct view of the state over and against, and he in many respects put it over the church. John Locke did something similar. He he said that the state, you know, governs the outer man and the church, the word of God would govern the inner man. He'd make this inner outer distinction. And the American founders are building on that tradition. And obviously there's a lot of good things in that tradition. I don't want to throw it out entirely. I just want to say that's it's not the be all and end all, and we need to we need to um, pay a little more attention to our Bibles. Hmm. I kind of wanted to ask this question, Jonathan. Jonathan, um, yeah. at what point did we get so polarized in our nation? Because I remember in two thousand and eight, in two thousand and eight was the the first election that I could vote in, and mm-hmm. I remember back in the day because I used to play in bands, there was not that not that not that much. Um, divisiveness between the two parties like we you had some guys in the band that were republicans you had some guys in the band that were democrats and like and the same thing with our fans and we would just kind of have like playful discussions about who we were voting for and it it didn't it didn't feel hostile and then eight years later it's very hostile to the point where you have people that are like yeah i don't want to tell who who i voted for yeah, sure. That's a great question. And, and you know, to you, an anecdote I use in the book, it, when Justice Scalia, who's sort of a famous conservative justice, died a couple of years ago, when he was voted in through the voted through the Senate into his uh, Supreme Court position, he was voted by a ninety-eight to zero or ninety-eight to two in the U.S. Senate. Yeah, that's, that's a, crazy. That's, that was in 86. That's astonishing to think about today because today, as you know, any, any Supreme Court nomination is going to pu- be a pure party line vote. Republicans pretty much voting one way, Democrats voting another way. So, yeah, in some sense, things have changed. I want to say in another way, look, the nation has always gone through different bouts of 
of, of division. I mean, think of the Civil War. That was a pretty divided nation, right? So yeah. <laughs> th- th- this does seem to be, however, uh, uh, an unusually divided time. And I think there's going to be a number of factors that are involved in that. I, I, I'm not a historian. I, I can't begin to list all of them. I mean, in some ways, it's little stuff. So, for instance, you know, here's, here's one anecdote. When Newt Gingrich came into the House in 1994, or rather, he, he became Speaker of the House in 1994, and uh, you had his compact contract with America, and there was this this big tidal wave of Republican legislatures coming in, representatives coming in. Uh, he started encouraging uh, re- representatives to go home over the weekends. Well, previously, all the representatives would have been in there on the weekends, and and Democrats and Republican members of the House would go to the same schools, go to the same churches, be in the same, you know, go to their kids' same baseball teams. And so there was a lot of more relationship between Republicans and Democrats in the House of Representatives. Well, when Gingrich Gingrich comes in in 94 and says, hey, look, you guys should go over the weekend, uh, suddenly those relationships that have been built up over the two sides of the aisle just sort of attenuated. So with less relationship, less friendship in common, things in the House of Representatives becomes more divisive. Well, in many ways, I think that's sim- symbolic of what's happened perhaps in American society as a whole. Less and less do we hang out and spend time and build relationships with people who belong to different tribes than we do. And when you don't have relationships with people and you don't understand them, uh, yeah, you're just going to throw bombs. You were talking about the band you were in in 2008 and even then. you know, There was relationships and people could be on both sides, whereas these days for some reason we can't. Why is that? Uh, gosh, I mean – I, th- I think I think um, I, you know I I'm, I'm, I think I'm going to pass on that question. I just think that there's <laughs> so, so many things there. I, I wonder if, if I wonder if LGBT and and the progress that has made has something to do with it. I think George W. Bush and Obama back to back. I think both of them uh, uh, were heroes to one side, but really obnoxious to the other side. Uh, why? I, you know, I'm not really sure. I I, I do wonder if. Uh, I do wonder if this country is increasingly uh, opposed to certain Christian principles, and so that is a cause for division. Yeah. What do What do you? I mean, honestly, what do you guys think? I was gonna. I was just gonna say. I was gonna ante up, and I was gonna say, what do you What do you think about social media? And because, oh yeah, I, yeah like like Facebook and yeah, like Facebook and Twitter. I mean, it caters to you, the consumer. And it develops everything around what you like. And it, I mean, it develops echo chambers and we get stuck in them. And you, you mentioned throwing bombs and that's, that's kind of what, I don't, I don't want to say we're forced to, but it's getting harder and harder to, it seems like, to see the other side's perspective. You know, my, we, well, were, you- we were talking about it at, you know, we just had Easter and we were sitting around with our parents and, and discussing this very thing. And it's like, um, you know, what kind of news sources are you going to take in? Younger generations that aren't watching or listening to the news. Your major news networks don't even exist. They just don't. I mean, they're going to find something on you. It's going to be Ben Shapiro on YouTube or it's or Alex Jones or or whoever, you know. Um, No, I think that's exactly right. And even even we know that, you know, Google's using algorithms to give us advertising that appeals to one side or the other and or twitter it's 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 telling us what we like and it's kind of reinforcing it. and there you have that that um that echo chamber that you're describing yeah. so yeah i think in many ways technology and media and social media is increasingly tribalized and we we kind of fall into our tribes 
Um, I, I wonder, honestly, I wonder if the movement of Christians, say, away from public schools, increasingly into home schools and private schools is part of it. You know, that would sort of be like oh, Newt Gingrich saying to his House of Representatives, hey, you guys go home for the weekends. Well, if, if I'm no longer involved with my family in the public school uh, and I'm just in the home school or I'm in the, the private Christian school, yeah, there's just going to be less places of commonality. Right. Our second uh, our second episode ever was called the homeschool rapture. <laughs> and oh, it got right. us in a lot of trouble. It was not. <laughs> it was saying, well, I'm not. A, I'm not opposed to homeschool. I mean, no, we, neither we, are we, neither are we. But the title alone uh, <laughs> did, did enough damage. Gotcha. Gotcha. Uh, it didn't win friends. Huh? No, it didn't. Um, <laughs> it was it was a positive conversation. But yeah, to to that same that same note of constantly. Um, I mean, how long is it before Christianity becomes our, you know, I guess, evangelical movement, whatever you want to call it, becomes a lot like the Amish? Like it's so secluded and so disconnected that it's just kind of oh, those there, there's a small minority group, kind of. And I don't, want, I don't know if I'm being offensive to Amish people or not. Hey, I don't. don't take away churning my butter from me. <laughs> well, here's here's, well, here's one of this. Here's one other element. Uh, in all, no, that's true. They can't. Here's one other element in all of this. Uh, P- Patrick Deneen wrote a book called Why Liberalism Failed, and he has this thesis. He talks about the, the individualistic anthropology of of liberalism and uh, the individualistic individualistic anthropology that we ha- we mostly have these days, right? Um, and he says indivi- what individualism does is actually increases and promotes statism. Right, as in the state has rule over everything. So when 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 the main goal of my political philosophy is to secure greater and greater areas of freedom, right? Freedom to uh, define myself, freedom from their imposition and their incursions, uh, freedom even say to define my own gender or whatever the case may be. When when what I want is more and more freedom from the local cultures, the church, the my parents, my grandparents, all these embedded societal institutions from me, well, who do I look to? I look to the state. So what you get with growing individualism, ironically, he says, is a growing state. So uh, liberalism promises a, a smaller state that basically exists to protect our freedoms, but in order to protect our freedoms, the state has to go into more and more areas of life, and so the state, little by little, grows. So increasing individualism means increasing statism, increasing statism means increasing individualism. And what's, what's, what's being evacuated in the middle is this kind of middle level yeah. of local community, church, associations, organizations, little league, you know, Kiwanis, whatever, whatever the case, but YMCA, uh, which, which, which uh, Masonic temples, whatever the case is, where people would come together, public schools even, frankly, where people would come together and learn to associate and cooperate and build trust in one another, learn to work through things together at a civic level. Well, when that gets evacuated and everything is all about the federal government, and frankly, just you know, my Twitter feed, all it is is about the presidency. All it is is about Trump. Yeah. I'm also like, hey, media, do you want to cover like local city council stuff? Do you want to cover local government or the, you know, the, the governor of Maryland? They never talk about the governor of Maryland. Well, nobody cares about that. All we care about is the presidency and maybe the federal government in general. Well, what's the point? This middle level is being evacuated. Sorry, go ahead. No, I didn't mean to interrupt you. I was just saying it's, uh, uh, it seems, I mean, I'll put myself in this category is we don't even know what's going on in the local level. 
Like, yeah, that's right. That's right. And so when that happens, yeah, we're increasingly falling in or falling into our individual silos, our individual tribes. We're looking for the, the, the presidency or the state to fix it at some kind of grand, universal, abstract level. But what we don't is the ability we don't have is the ability to go down to city hall or a town meeting or whatever and talk these things through with our fellow neighbors. Yeah, I mean, there's that Joe Biden Donald Trump fight coming up. So I mean, why would we want to go to the city council <laughs> meeting? If that's going to be on pay per view. I know. I know. I was listening to NPR and somebody made the comment. Just imagine all the Werther's candies that are going to be on the ground when those, those two duke it out. Nice. <laughs> Nice. Oh man. Battle of the Greys. Oh. Um anyway, so I kind of wanted to get back to this this idea of the the public square and how we we bring our gods into the public square, Jonathan. Uh-huh. I feel like it's becoming more and more hostile to have a differing opinion when Oh yes. And so I kind of wanted I was talking about this with somebody on Facebook. I'm like, "Well, how do we disagree?" Because not everybody is going to have the same opinion that I have on, say, on on the gun on guns, or not everybody's going to have the same opinion on Donald Trump's presidency. You know, some people think it's an F, and other people think it's an A plus plus plus. So, how do we enter into this public square knowing that we have these different gods, these different people that, or these different viewpoints, but still not, you know, walk into the public square and everybody walks out of this public square not bloody and beaten. Yeah, sure. Well, let, let me say this. The, the, the first, that's the second burden of my book, answering that question. The first burden of my book is, in, a, in, in an indirect answer to your question, is recognizing that our political hope as Christians should rest in our local churches, not in what happens in the public square. Hmm. Uh, it's, in the, it's in our local churches where we should learn to train uh, to live according to a true politics, right? Yeah. Um, so I, I, I mentioned that line from Lincoln earlier, uh, at the very end of the second inaugural, inaugural address where he talks about achieving and cherishing a just and lasting peace among ourselves and all nations. Well, where is it that first and foremost we should accomplish and see and experience and discover a just and lasting peace among ourselves and with all nations? Well, I hope it's in our local churches. I hope our local churches are multi-ethnic, international-esque assemblies where we're learning to lay down our swords, lay down our our weapons, and love people who are different than us, right? Uh, where we're experiencing a true justice and a true righteousness and a true love. So I think of that line from Paul where he says, you who preach against stealing, do you steal? Well, to the members of a local church, I want to say, you who care about you know, a pro-life position, do you do you care for the single mom in your church? You who care about welfare rights, are you are you giving money to the people in your church? You know, you who uh, you who say Black Lives Matter, or on the opposite side, all lives matter. Do all of your friends look just like you? You know. So, in other words, it's in the local church where I put my political hopes first and foremost, because that's the place through the gospel that we have the power to see what a true righteous justice and unity looks like. Then, with the lessons that we learn in the local church, say, going to your question, how do I disagree with other people? Well, I learn how to do that in actual real-life relationships in our local church. That should then spill out 
into the public square and how I learn to engage people who are different than me and have different views of justice than me and who, who look different than me and different backgrounds. I learned those lessons in the local church, which then I apply to the public square, right? Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's a long process. There's not, there's not any short-term answers. But I think we need to be willing to go into the public square and both find common ground at times, look for common ground arguments, try to make those. But there's other times where we got to go in and say, look, I, I'm, I'm coming from my perspective. I'm, I'm speaking on behalf of what I believe the Bible teaches, and uh, I think this is wrong or I think this is right. Uh, let's stop pretending that we can leave our gods behind. None of us are leaving our gods behind. I, I can double-click on that one if, if you guys want me to. I think there's different kinds of arguments we'd use. But the big picture, what I'm trying to say is, first and foremost, we train for politics in our local churches. It's interesting, in Washington, D.C., we have a lot of people who move here because they want to change the world, right? They want to change America, and they come to church, and they're kind of casually involved with church. And I want to say, look, if you're interested in politics, but you're not willing to love the older saints in this congregation, if you claim to cl claim to care about politics, but, you know, again, all of your friends are white like you or they're all black like you, you don't understand the beginning of politics. You know, you're, you're playing with matchbox cars on the floor on your hands and knees when I want to offer you a, you know, a big old car to climb into and drive. And that's the life of this congregation. So start there and then move outward. So I'm taking the question, brother, in a slightly different question direction you wanted me to go, but yeah. happy for you to follow up or push push no, me where you yeah, want. Yeah, no, to go. I want to talk about I want to talk about the message coming from the pulpit, and you know, I, I think I think ultimately it, it should center around peacemaking, like blessed are the peacemakers. Uh -huh. But often, what I hear, and you could look at the people flocking out of not just the evangelical church, but all churches. Well, it seems like there's a bigger swing. Um, well, I mean, regardless, there's a lot of people leaving the church for, for years. But you have the I've heard a, a lot of the message coming from the pulpit. Well, of uh, how do I want to word this? Uh, Carefully. Yeah, I know it. That's what I'm trying to do. Um, <laughs> you can always edit it. Yeah, I can. Um, you know, the the message seems like well, if if you can't get along, maybe you should separate yourself. And, and I think, I think that division isn't, isn't good. I think it's extremely harmful, right? If, yeah. if, if, yeah. if somebody makes me angry, there, there should be a peacemaking process in there and there isn't one. And so the, yeah. the message you get is, well, if they make you angry, well, maybe you should spend some time apart from them or, hmm. and, I don't know if you notice that or if you can tell I'm, I'm scrambling at words here. If you can tell what I'm picking or like, if you can pick up what I'm well, let me, let me, let me, Maybe, maybe <laughs> let me try. Okay, yeah. And tell, tell me if I'm moving in the wrong direction. I, what I think is critical, a couple of things. Number one, I think it's critical for, for us to be able to, 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 to go to the Lord's table loving people who voted differently than us in the last election. Mm -hmm. So think of Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 11 where he, he exhorts the Corinthians to discern the body. Whenever you come together to eat, he says, discern the body, lest you eat, drink, and judge, eat and drink judgment on yourourself. That's I, I'm messing it up slightly, but it's it's, it's that that's the gist. Mm -hmm. uh, that means if I voted for Trump, I should be able to sit at the Lord's Supper and recognize my unity in the gospel with those who voted for Clinton, and vice versa. Or if I voted for neither, right? Um, 
In other words, we need to understand that the gospel which unites us is more important and more powerful than the partisan politics that divide us. That is essential, I think. Now, what's tough about that is clearly there are significant issues of justice at stake. I don't want to deny that, right? And there, I think we just have to exercise a lot of charity with one another and recognizing that good Christians, good faithful Christians who are uh, uh, meaning to love the Lord God with all their mind, heart, and soul, and strength, and who mean to love the neighbor as themselves, are going to come to different conclusions about some of these important, tough political decisions. And unless you are an apostle and you have the spirit of revelation, and Jesus telling you, here's the right position yeah. on, this, on this biblically unspecified issue. Where the Bible is clear on something, okay, that's one thing. And there's a few issues, I would say, on which the Bible is very clear. But on many political issues, including who to vote for, I would say the Bible just ordinarily, there's exceptions, ordinarily doesn't specify. And what that means is, Part of Christian humility and charity and love is leaving room for other Christians, other brothers and sisters in Christ to disagree with me about the conclusions that they come to. And if I'm so proud that I'm unwilling to do that, well, then I'm going to be the source of disunity. So, yeah, I think there needs to be a lot more charity in our churches, a lot more deference, a lot more willingness to allow for Christian liberty. Here's, you, you guys asked, what's the source of, of, of division in our culture? I, I said, I'm not entirely sure. This much I'm certain of. The source of unity among Christians, among other things, is a strong, vibrant doctrine of Christian liberty, which means I allow other Christians to make different decisions some on, on some of these tough political and moral issues where, again, the Bible is not super explicitly clear. Is that is that helping at all? Is that is that where you're trying to get at? Yeah, I I think so. You're talking about extending grace to people with different uh, different different convictions. That's yes, right. different convictions. I was going to say hot button topics, but yeah, convictions is better. Yeah, I remember listening to a pastor one time, and he said, "I have more in common," and he's down in Texas, and he said, "I have more in common with a with a brother in Pakistan who believes and loves Jesus than I do have." in common with the Texan that lives down my street because a non-Christian Texan, a non-Christian Texan. Yes. Yeah, that's right. That's exactly right. Well, that, see, we, we feel that acutely in Washington DC, right? Um, for, for, for several reasons. One, people come here from all around the world to work in an embassy to, you know, do different things. So we have people from all over the country. And, and when my, my pastor at Capitol Hill Baptist in 1993 arrived there in 1994, there was a Christian and American flag on the platform. And I won't go into the whole story, but basically he, he uh, through a series of events, removed the, the Christian and the American flag from the platform of the church for, for precisely the reasons that that Texas pastor just uh, said. Look, we have more in common with our fellow believers in Nigeria and Pakistan and, and wherever. And it turned into a little bit of a, of a, of a debate in the church. Yeah. Uh, gratefully, they got through it, and gratefully, they decided to keep the, the, the flag out. Because the church is not fundamentally American. It's international. It's multinational, right? It's intergalactical. Inter- <laughs> <laughs> don't forget the aliens. Oh, I don't know. Gosh, I I'm kind of the comic relief on the show, Jonathan. I'm sorry. <laughs> well, we have to do the same thing in Washington, D.C. with partisan politics. 
You know, we, we, we got to say, hey, look, this church is big enough for Republicans and Democrats both. Uh, Jesus means to save Republicans and Democrats. Um, and so we want to be a church that, that is, is welcoming to both. Now, look, I, I actually do believe that a time and a place may come where party membership is uh, makes church membership difficult. I don't think you can be a member of the Nazi party and a member of my church. I don't think you can be a member of the Communist Party yeah. and a member of my – I don't think you can be a member of the Ku Klux Klan and a member of my church. In other words, if we discover you're a member of one of those three, we will actually discipline you. We will yeah. excommunicate you from our church. I don't think either the Republican or Democratic Party in America today have reached that point. No. It's possible they would at some point. I don't think they have yet. And so as long as that's the case – yeah, we continue to exercise love and charity with our fellow believers who belong to different parties. Yeah, I guess my uh, my great fear is the number of people who are leaving the church because they they can't agree on a a hot button issue, and soon the the church isn't made isn't a body made up of many different parts. It's made up of all the same part, and it's yeah, it ceases to function. I'm, yeah. Well, there was an article in the New York Times just a couple of weeks ago. It said, why are, 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 are uh, black Christians leaving white churches? And what it talked about is how the, the, the silence of white pastors, when the whole Black Lives Matter thing came up, yeah. just kind of the silence over that was sort of a first uh, blow. And then with the 81% election of, of white evangelicals for Trump, that was sort of the second blow. And particularly when a lot of, when, when a lot of uh, white pastors promoted Trump, I think that a lot of, well, according to this New York Times article, and it, it's certainly the case in my experience from what I've witnessed as well, a lot of minority members felt disenfranchised. Yeah. They felt like, you know, what, what, what's going on here? Um, you seem to care more about Republicans' politics than you do about me. And, um, so yeah, they've, they've, they've left those churches now pick a different issue, you know, other stuff on the other side as well. I, I'm sure that's possible when something like that happens. I think often there, you know, there, there could be fault on both sides. It just depends on the issue. On the one hand, I think pastors, church leaders, the pulpit has become way too partisan in many instances. Um, not on the particular issues of, of blacks and whites that I was just talking about, but I think on other issues, the, the fault could lie with the members themselves. They could be insisting too much on a particular brand or party brand of politics. So I, I don't want to fault only pastors. Yeah. I think the fault can sometimes lie with Christians as well. Uh, in, in both cases, there's probably maturing that can be done. But no, you're exactly right. When a, when a party over-identifies, I'm sorry, when a church over-identifies with one party, yeah, it just it feels like an annex of that party. And I think the gospel is potentially compromised. I think the church's witness is harmed. So yeah, we need to be very careful about those things. Yeah, and I, I'm not I'm not trying to knock people who've left the church. For a lot of them, I I totally get it. <laughs> I totally I no. totally understand. To me, I think it's sad um, at the lack of peacemaking message coming from the pulpit. Yeah. Now now, when you say leave the church, do you mean leave? one particular church or do you mean leave the church as a whole it depends some people leave the church and go to a different church i myself have done that um yeah yeah well to take for instance one of my friends who um she's like i don't think i'm angry at god i think i'm angry at his people 
And and you yeah. you brought up some some of those stats. I mean, it's the silence on on different movements and you know, I remember after after the election, the bu- the buzzword was hypocrite. Mm-hmm. And and morals and hypocrite and morals and hypocrite and here you you try to have some uh, these religious types force all these morals on everybody else and now look at who they elect I mean where's where's the standard Yeah yeah and that's why I, I would say to people who find themselves frustrated with with Christians and with churches I think the first thing I would say is yeah. <laughs> You're probably right. Um, Great answer. Yeah, I'm with we're, you. We're, 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 we, we can be hypocritical, yeah. and we can be sin, uh, sinful, and we can have double standards, and I'm sorry. Please forgive me. Forgive us totally. Um, uh, if, if, if your church isn't filled with sinners, it's, it's not a real church. Church is for sinners. If, if you're not a sinner, in fact, you're not welcome in my church. Uh, we have only sinners in my church. Um, and, of course, it's a particular subset of sinners. It's repenting sinners. And so when you challenge us and you help us to see our sin, then hopefully we repent of it. But what you're going to find in the church is, yes, you're going to find hypocrisy. You're going to find double standards. And, you know, God forgive us. At the same time, I'd ask you, remember what Jesus or John says in, in, in one of his epistles. He says, don't say you love God, but don't love the brother. So my challenge yeah. for the Christian who's tempted to leave the church altogether is, wait, hold on. Uh, in fact, we need you to love us and forgive us. Yeah. Uh, and we, part of love, yeah. God is is learning to love sinful us, so please don't give us uh, up on us yet. Yeah, and we need you. We need you. We need your voice. We need your teaching. Yeah, we need your education. Yeah, no, I think that's right. Because this is, this is I'm confident of this. Uh, you're not going to find something better out there. Yeah. The, ch- the church is the church is no less, frankly, the church is no less hypocritical than anybody else in any other party. Yeah. Now, what's sad is the church is is not distinct. It should be distinct. It should be less so, and sometimes, often, in fact, it's not. Uh, nonetheless, you're not going to find a less immoral, less uh, hypocritical people or group or party out there. I'm afraid that's just the human condition. Hopefully, what's distinct about Christians is they recognize it and confess it and fight against it and look to Christ to be their righteousness, look to Christ to be their hope, and are learning little by little from one degree of glory to the next, to use Paul's language, are conforming to the image of Christ. Yeah. yeah, if you don't see that all in your congregation, if your congregation is is just pure hypocrisy, well then, yeah, I, I'd encourage you to find another church. If they're not preaching the gospel and living by the gospel, yeah, look for another church. Yeah, I mean, yeah, too. I I don't want to sound like we're we're bashing the, the church totally, because um, the church is amazing. I mean, Alex can speak towards that the last couple of weeks. Yeah, the I mean, church is cool. <laughs> Alex, Alex <laughs> well, just a, became a foster. That was a ranking endorsement. <laughs> church is cool. Oh well, no, I mean it's deeper. That Alex just became a foster parent, and I mean and you could the, yeah the church just showered us with with gifts and like we we got we got well we had two and now we're down to just one now but like just the the support from the church and not just from our church that jason and i go to but from other churches and friends and christians just coming together and saying we are for you we're praying for you and here's some baby formula too because that's what we we need that so yeah the church is cool 
Well, think about think about the fruit of the spirit, where Paul talks about um, you know peace, patience, gentleness, kindness, gentleness, uh, self control, love. Well, what are those? Well, those are virtues we have to demonstrate inside of churches when given reason not to. Right? Yes. When do you when do you have to exercise patience? Well, it's not when everything is great. Yeah. It's when people give you reason not to be patient. So the very call to the fruits of the spirit is a call to live in in in, in a setting in a church where people are giving you reason not to. Yeah. Right? It's in the church. Let me put it this way: it's in the church where we first learn to love our enemies. Because what you have in a congregation is a, a group of people who are, by their nature, by their flesh, self-glorying, right? And and it's it's there. Where, and so in that sense, they're kind of natural-born enemies. But because we're, we're trusting the gospel, it's inside the church where we learn to forgive and forbear and love one another. And so you think of Paul in Philippians chapter 1 where he tells us to live in a manner worthy of the gospel. Right. Well, okay, Paul. That sounds cool. What's what's a man? What's a life worthy of the gospel? Well, he goes on to say it's it's a life in which, <clears throat> if there's any encouragement in Christ, any consolation and love, any fellowship with the Spirit, that we are being having the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose, doing nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, considering others as more important than yourselves. And then he he, he uses the example of Christ, who though in the nature of God, became nothing taking on the form of a servant. And then he goes on to say, so now continue to work out your salvation. Do everything without grumbling and arguing. <laughs> In other words, isn't that amazing? Yeah. <laughs> it's, like, it's like he takes this most glorious picture of God or, or of Christ, who in the nature of God did not consider something quality with God something he grasped, but made himself nothing. And then he puts it to work, that amazing theology, puts it to work yeah. in the most nitty gritty area of the church's life, people complaining. She didn't show up for nursery on time. She said she'd be there on nursery on time. <laughs> I can't believe she was there. And Paul's like, hold on. Think of Christ. Though in the nature of God did not consider quality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing. Jesus would have showed up for nursery on time. All the time. And yet still, and yet still, he humbled himself. I want you guys to have the same attitude. Right. So church church work is tough. Yeah. Church work is hard. Yeah. It's forgiving sinners. That's what we're called to. I, I like to look at Paul's letters and, and say th- those are uh, a survival guide for the church. That's how to survive church. <laughs> and they, well put. Well put. And, and the key word is uh, long suffering. <laughs> yeah, no, that's exactly right. Well said. Uh, but, but when... I mean, no labor is in vain and you see the fruits of it. I mean, Alex is seeing that right now. And at yeah, times it's to hear that. At, at times it's the most beautiful thing ever. And as broken as it's going to be, right? And in, in Ephesians, I mean, Paul says it will be redeemed. Jesus will make it and present it spotless and perfect. Yeah, yeah. I think I think well, it's worthwhile to be a part of. That's what I'm saying. Even even in its brokenness. Well, let me let me say this. It's not just worthwhile that that. Uh, let me affirm that. I think even more than that, it's part of our new identity. Yes. Right. So you talked about a foster child. You know, uh, adoption is a, is a huge, a huge metaphor in scripture. What happens when mom and dad go down to the you know the orphanage and adopt you? Well, they bring you home and they put you at the family dinner table. Who's at the family dinner table? Brothers and sisters. Yeah. In other words, if you are united to Christ, you are also united to Christ's body. 
And it's in, through our involvement in a local church that we put on that body. So why do we join a church? Why should we associate our fellowship and our life and discipleship with local churches? Not just because it's good for us, though that's true. Even more fundamentally, because it's who we are. We are the body of Christ. And so we put on that embodiment in fellowship in local churches. So yeah, it's a crucial and essential part of the Christian life. That's awesome. That's well put. Yes. We're... uh we're at an hour, Jonathan, and I want to be as respectful of your time. I've got one more question. Do you have any more questions? I'm good. Alex? I'm just, I'm enjoying listening. I'm, I'm taking no, it all No, that's a in. great conversation. Yeah, let's do it. One more. Okay. Uh, do the boxing gloves on your cover, do they crush the church? <laughs> Is that? <laughs> well, I'll tell you what. Sometimes, in some nations, they have. Yes. So in North Africa, in the uh, 7th century, uh, the, the, the Muslims wiped out the church or most of the church Tamerlane in Central Asia they, they he wiped out the church in, in the, the, 14th, the 13th 12th 13th century oh, I think I read that. Uh, J- Japan in the in the 17th century they, they wiped out many most of the church so the church can be wiped out it can be crushed now will the Republicans and Democrats wipe out the church I hope not I don't think so who knows but yeah our job is to be, uh, here's, 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 here's the, one of the main big ideas in the book. Our, our job is not to go into the public square to dominate it. Our job is not to withdraw from the public square. Our job is to go in as faithful ambassadors, whether times are good or times are bad. The skies are clear, the skies are cloudy. Our job is simply to be witnesses for King Jesus. You think of Daniel doing that in Nebuchadnezzar's palace, you think of uh, Joseph doing that in Pharaoh's household. Uh, Christians are called to be ambassadors, not to dominate, not to withdraw, but to be there and to represent. That's awesome. Mm-hmm. Um, Jonathan, thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, man, thank you. Thank you for writing this book. I, I, oh, thank you, guys. It was it was a joy. And talking to you was fun, too. Uh, you guys are a blast. <laughs> <laughs> That's it. Thanks. No, I'm serious. This, this has been one of the more entertaining, fun interviews I've done. That's awesome. <laughs>
Well, he's really good at seeing stuff from both sides. And I don't think most people can do that. It's hard. Yeah. It really is hard to do that. Like, I try... Like, obviously, a lot of people know I have a, I have a particular leaning. Yeah. I try to see both sides. I, I try that out of, out of just looking at Jesus' life and seeing how he has compassion for all people. I try to do that. But even still, I, I, I fail at it. Jonathan does way better. Well, hey, I requested this book for you because I tend to lean the other way politically. <laughs> and this is a good book for that, though. Because, yeah. I, like I said, he's just really good at viewing things down the middle. So if you have like that super conservative family member. Or that super liberal family member. Yep. Go ahead, pick him up this book and give it to him. If you got Amazon but, Prime, it's free shipping. But please, you can't lose. Read it yourself first. I thought he was right on par. I mean, I'm sure he wouldn't necessarily agree with everything. Keith Giles, remember when we had him yeah. on and his book Jesus Untangle: Crucifying Your Politics to Pledge Allegiance to the Lamb. Yeah, just phenomenal subtitle. Yes, but, I mean, I, th- I felt like he was right on par with that with that message. And just how do we get this thing back to Jesus? I heard this is interesting. and I've been thinking about this uh, ever since a, a political commentator that I listened to said it. He said a, a constitutional republic, what we have right now, like everybody talks about how, how our system of government is better than all the other ones. He said it's not better than the other ones. He said it's it's it still has its flaws. It still has its, you know, faults. He said, actually the best form of government would be a king because a king could make decisions like right now. Yeah. A king that does everything that you want him to do, him or her to do. And he left it at that. And I said to myself, I said, self, that sounds exactly like Jesus's kingdom because Jesus is going to be that king that does everything that we need that makes the best decisions for us. That is the best political system. Yeah. And when he said that, I was I was blown away by that because I was like, ah, that's the thing I got to be looking for. That's the thing I got to be hoping for, because this this will eventually end. This the United when, States. When, when will do end. you think it will end? If you if you had to put a conservative timestamp on conservative it, conservative timestamp. I don't know. The first number that comes to my mind is four thousand two hundred twenty nine. Oh, mine was 69, <laughs> just because that's the episode we're on. <laughs> I think it'll be within our lifetime. Every, Is that crazy? Every generation I know it. Has I know said it. That. That's like the cop out. That's the cop out. But I don't think it'll be in our lifetime. I do. I think it will totally be in our lifetime. Who cares? We're going to be raptured. <laughs> <laughs> that was the fakest laugh ever. I know, but it was, it was great. So, Jason, I really enjoyed this interview, and I hope you, dear listener, enjoyed this interview, but... Jason, yeah, we have some feedback from oh, our other yeah. interviews that we've done, other episodes. Got so some feedback, some little shout outs. Let me pull these shout bad boys it out. I'm gonna start on the Instagram. You know what? We don't get a whole lot on the Instagram per I mean, se. It's just people liking pictures, yeah. And whatnot. But this, um, I don't know if they're a website or organization. I should probably look that up beforehand. But they, um, they mentioned us in a comment. Uh, with our interview with Joy Beth Smith. Oh. All the single ladies, all the single so, ladies. Oh. Sorry. And guys, too, dude. Yeah, I guess the guys, but it doesn't work in the Beyonce song. No, so. it doesn't. Honored underscore singles on Instagram. You can follow them there. But they um, they said, This week, we're hitting you with a book review. Party of One by JB's Two Cents. That are at JB's Two Cents. That's Joy Beth. 
really packs a punch. Joy Beth Smith explores topics like dating, sexuality, masturbation, and loneliness with honesty and insight. She draws on her own experiences of following Jesus as a single woman with a humor and openness, which makes it really easy to read. Check out our website to find the whole review and listen to Joy Beth Smith speaking on these topics at Not Your Pastors Podcast. So I wanted to give them a, a quick shout out because... Is that the place from the UK? Yeah, I think so. We've made it across the pond. <laughs> <laughs> no, so I, th- I thought that was I thought that was nice of them. And we got some plays off that. But greatly appreciated to our, our friends in the UK. Yes. Yeah, so we got a little bit of feedback too on our Jamie the Worst Missionary episode. Of course we did. Which is just doing awesome number-wise. Probably... One of our number best. one on iTunes, yeah, for us. <laughs> <laughs> we will get there. Uh, no, but our buddy Rob Clady, oh, who is Rob. on episode five, five, something yeah, like five. that. I mean, yeah. way back we went to Tenacity Brewery and hung out with them. He said, "I listened to the podcast today and look forward to the book." Jason, you are a saint. Also, I wish I could have listened to more of the bumper music. Excellent. <laughs> Talking about a little bit of bringing down Broadway there. Oh, there's an EP coming out. Yeah, and then his wife Tamara said she's followed this chick for years. How cool. Oh, and then our buddies at Church and Other Drugs said, great guest and great interview, guys. And that was the... I have this confidence now that if I'm gone, Jess can fill in for me. Yeah. Speaking of Jess... You know, she just premiered her debut episode on oh, Outside yeah, I listened the Walls. To it. That was a great, it was a, that was a really good, very insightful. And I'm kind of like, yeah, I've never heard it said this way before. And I'm glad your wife went on Brandon Anderson's podcast and said it. Yeah. Well, I mean, technically she's co-host. Oh, yeah. I mean, official title. But she had this to say about you and Shauna. Oh, she did? On Twitter. And you can follow her at JessDunk3. Alex and Shauna are mine and Jason's very closest friends. They are no two. There are no two people with more pure, honest, and humble hearts, always seeking to expand God's kingdom. I am so proud of them and looking forward to snuggling on baby tea soon. And she shared our episode. My heart. <laughs> It's about to burst with joy. <laughs> Jess Duncan, you have a way with words. Yeah, but she's Thanks, talking. Jess. Yeah, talking about you and Shauna. Um, All the credit goes to my wife. She dragged me into this. <laughs> she dragged. No, she didn't. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Uh, oh, and then more. there was yeah, one more here from Rocky Glenn. Um. Great episode, and now I have two additional podcasts for my listening pleasure, and that was in reply to our episode with the Red Rum Theater. Red Rum Theater. And Covert Nerd, and you guys can go back and listen to that one. We talk about what movies you should and should not watch. Game of Thrones, stay away. (laughs) Caddyshack, roll it. (laughs) Anyway, Jason, so... Um, yeah, that wrap, that wraps up the, the feedback. That wraps now. up our feedback. So just so you guys know, we have 50 five-star reviews now. Yes. Which is great. I I can't I, wait to get to 100. That's what I want. I want I want us to get to 100 at some point. Maybe this time next year. Yeah. Let's make it a goal to be close to 100. What would you do if we got to 100 within a year? <sighs> Gosh, what would I do? Do you dance with the devil in the pale moonlight? Oh, 
Batman 1989. <laughs> Jack Nicholson, dude. Tim Burton. What would I do if we hit 100? You don't have to answer it now. You, just, you let that soak in there. It's got to be something You know what? Good. I'll, I'll think of it. The closer we get. How about this? The closer we get to that 100 mark, I'll make it something juicy. Something juicy? Something juicy. Like I, I, I kind of don't want you to do it now. <laughs> I just picture you and juicy and... I don't want I will it. purposely shart my pants. <laughs> no. <laughs> no, because it's just me and you in the basement. <laughs> like that that works. We'll, we'll do it Facebook Live. We'll do it live. <laughs> oh man. This is taking a turn for the worst. Yeah. But like I always say, guys, please leave us a five star review. That really helps us get uh in front of more people's ears. Some exposure. The pod, they some say. exposure for yeah. sure. And I read every five-star review, so write whatever you want in there. I'll read it. If there's a curse word, I'll say it, yeah. okay? Because this is, this is how dedicated I am to the podcast. <laughs> but um, So leave a five-star review. Make sure you guys are interacting with us on social media, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. We're there. We're always... Um, yeah, and more importantly, our website, not your pastor's pulp... No, I'm sorry notyourpastorspodcast.com. There's a page on there called Pulpit, and you can hear a new sermon release from Phil Britton. Um, you can hear it there. You can submit your own, and we highly encourage you guys to just think about that. We would love to have you on our podcast, and this is just like that awesome way. If you ever felt like, hey, I want to share Jesus in a podcast format, but I don't want to start my own podcast. You can come on ours. We do it. We've done over 20 of them now. That's incredible, dude. Yeah. Just people sharing Jesus from their own context. Absolutely. Just helping us grow, man. Helping us so, grow. So, Jason, I thought we could kind of kind of end the show on a more serious note. Like we yeah, always try to we do have things, to. We always try and do things a little bit more lighthearted towards the end. Um, but this is kind of serious. Um, so a tragic event happened this past weekend. and yeah. The the Humboldt Broncos, a mm-hmm. uh, uh, hockey team from Saskatchewan, Canada, got in a uh, bus accident, and you guys know how much we love hockey, and I mean, I am a gigantic hockey fan, and I follow these young teams. I mean, we have one, at, we're, we're lucky enough to have a team like this here in Flint, where it's... It's kids trying to make it to the next level. They're 16 to 21-year-old kids. And up in Canada, they they got in a bus accident and 15 of them passed away. It's tragic, dude. Really is. I hate to end I hate to end the podcast on this note, but it's something that I think we that needs to be talked about, that needs to be said, and especially with our backgrounds and ho- our love of hockey, we Yeah. we wouldn't be doing ourselves justice if we didn't talk about this. So uh, Yeah, I mean every every NHL star shares shares something with these kids because they all did that they all at those ages went to live with billet families and got on those buses mm-hmm. and so we we always try to end the podcast with our famous encouraging phrase and i think it's fitting for this more than ever so to all the families up there in canada all the fans of the humboldt broncos Keep your stick on the ice, guys.